With Democrat Tom Susie's victory in a special House election in New York yesterday, the shrinking Republican majority in the House was on track to dwindle even further, leaving the GOP able to afford only two defections from the party line on votes when all members are present. That will give the GOP almost no cushion to deal with the inevitable absences caused by illness, travel delays, weddings, funerals, and unforeseen events that could keep Republicans away from the House floor for votes. Israel carried out extensive and lethal airstrikes in southern Lebanon today in response to a deadly rocket attack on northern Israel, escalations in recent fighting that threatened to derail diplomatic efforts to prevent a major expansion of the war in the Gaza Strip. And in other news, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has drafted plans to release thousands of immigrants and to slash its capacity to hold detainees after the failure of a Senate border bill that would have erased a $700 million budget shortfall. Now, the bipartisan border bill that Republican lawmakers first said they supported, then opposed last week, would have provided $6 billion in supplemental funding for ICE enforcement operations. The bill's demise has led ICE officials to begin circulating an internal proposal to save money by releasing thousands of detainees and cutting detention levels from 38,000 beds to 22,000, the opposite of the enforcement increases Republicans say they want. And last May, Lindsey Graham visited the Ukrainian president warmly embracing the embattled leader and later urging President Biden to do more to help the nation as it fights off Russians' invasion. But this week, Lindsey Graham voted repeatedly against sending $60 billion in aid to Ukraine, as well as against other military funds for Israel and U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific. The longtime hawk dramatically announced on the Senate floor that he also would no longer be attending the Munich Security Conference, an annual trip made by world leaders to discuss global security concerns that's been a mainstay for Lindsey Graham's schedule for years. Now, many attribute Lindsey Graham's uh, recent behavior to his efforts to appease Donald Trump. And President Joe Biden lashed out at Special Counsel Robert Hur. Uh, this is over a particular, li particular line in the special counsel's report on Biden's handling of classified documents. Now, according to her in his 345-page report, a report that did absolve Joe Biden of criminal wrongdoing while pointing to evidence that he took home and kept highly classified material, the report also makes references that Joe Biden could not remember the date of his son Bo's death. As we all know, Joe Biden had a very special relationship with his older son and took offense to any references to his son or his son's death in the special counsel's report. According to those close to the president, he says, how in the hell he dare raise that question? So Joe Biden is on the defensive. And Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, has been urging Democrats to go on the offensive as well, but on the issue of border and immigration. In a memo he sent out to party members today, he cited the newly elected Democrat in New York that replaced 
George Santos and said, look, Democrats need to take on the issue of the border. They need to be more forceful and they need to call out Republicans who have refused to uh, negotiate in good faith and then ultimately pass a bill that would have provided more support for the border. This is Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time. And this is the hour where we dig a little deeper, where we go behind the headlines and we bring you those stories that people are talking about, those stories that have a significant impact on the lives of everyday people. And today we're talking about a new medical stu a study that's out in the JAMA Internal Medicine uh, publication. And this study says that Black adults who are exposed to news of police killings of unarmed Black people are more likely to suffer from poor sleep in the months uh, following those killings as compared to their white counterparts. Now, this new research highlights the insidious toll that police violence takes on Black adults and the entire Black community. This study also points to the dangers in society that other groups may not face and is a reminder that discrimination and systemic racism and police violence against Black folks, all of those things are a threat, not just to Black folks' physical health, but also a threat to our emotional and psychological well-being and ultimately our livelihood. So this hour, I'm gonna to talk to two experts about the findings in this report, what it means in terms of our physical health, our emotional health as Black folks, and what should we do about it? I mean, these studies come out from, in these medical journals that tell us about things that are hazardous to our health, but the question for you know regular people, regular meaning non-medical people, non-scientists, non-researchers, the question is always, how do I apply that information to my life? How do I use this information in a way that's going to improve my life, and in this case, my health? Uh, this is really important information. We have known for a long time that some of these videotapes of police shootings, what some people call uh, trauma porn, what you know, people uh, watch hours and hours and hours of these police shootings on the internet. Uh, videotapes of these shootings are often passed around. Uh, they go viral. We can all remember watching uh, George Floyd be literally stomped to death, you know, uh, strangled, suffocated by someone's knee on his neck. Uh, we've watched other uh, shootings of unarmed Black folks. We've just watched brutality uh, by police officers, uh, primarily against Black folk, and let's call it what it is, primarily against Black men. And there's always some conversation I've had, at least with psychologists and therapists, about how healthy or not it is to actually watch those videos. And there are always arguments for pro and con. You know, we're, we're grateful uh, for uh, cell phone videos because it didn't reveal uh, that police brutality is real, but it gave us an opportunity to witness it firsthand, to, to see it with our very eyes and not have to rely on oftentimes uh, misleading and false reports by police about what happened uh, when there has been a police shooting. But now this new study says that, you know, watching these videos and watching 
these police killings can have a really, really negative impact, not just on our emotional health, but on our physical health. When we come forward more on these studies and what we all need to know to keep ourselves healthy and well. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we're talking about a alarming new report out that links poor sleep habits in African-American adults to uh, them witnessing police killings of unarmed Black folks. And to help us make sense of these of the findings in this report and to help us understand what we need to do to protect our mental and physical health, uh, joining me are Dr. Christiana Awasan. She's an associate professor at Ina University. She's also a marriage and family therapist. Her research focuses on diversity, inclusion, social justice, and her publications address cultural response of clinical practices and effective training. Also uh, joining me for this hour is Dr. Carmen Black. She's an assistant uh, professor of psychiatry and director of social justice and health equity at Yale University. Uh, her work uh, has become a national model for patient and provider safety through promoting the equitable treatment uh, of behavioral emergencies by removing police uh, and security-based interventions from general hospital, hospital medicine. Uh, thank you so much uh, to both of you for joining. Let's uh, start with you, Dr. Black. Help us make sense of the findings in this report. And are these findings new? Like, is this some revelation that heretofore, you know, had never been disclosed to the public? Yeah, it's interesting. So I'll start with who is the audience of these medical journals? And I'll say that Black folks are 15% of the population, but less than 4% of the physicians. So is it news to people who aren't Black? Sure. Is it news to us? No. And so the summary of the findings is Black folks don't sleep when you kill us. It's very natural if you're Black. It makes no, it makes no reason to have a study for something that we're living on the daily, but to academia where they don't let us in, it's news. So why do it? If, if it's so commonplace or common sense, yeah, it makes sense to me. You watch someone get killed, you're upset, you're stressed, you can't sleep. But so why have a whole research study and publish a paper in a medical journal? It's funny, I ask the same thing every day. It's because <laughs> we're not here to demand that they take step two. Right. They're documenting all the evidence that racism sucks instead of going to dismantle racism. Um, dead black folks is great for academia. There's an endless sea of publications you can do. So it's easier and never ending to discover what racism does to us instead of ending what racism does to us. So what do you do, Dr. Awasan, with information like this? You are a marriage and family therapist in addition to being a professor at a university. Uh, so you you have a clinical practice. What does this information do for you, or you know, how do you use it, if at all, in your clinical practice? Yeah, thank you. This information does two things in my clinical practice, and also in my teaching as a professor. I, I teach um, mental health clinicians who are graduate students, right? So one of the things that I really um, teach them on is really understand what cultural responsive and informing. Um, therapy is, right? How do you assess when a client is coming to therapy and they're saying they're not sleeping? 
how do we assess to see does this have anything to do with the shooting, the violence that they might experience in their neighborhood? And nationally, when this is happening, how does it affect Black clients that are coming to therapy? So this is where it comes to in my therapy work, right, in my practice work, where I'm really looking at for clients, how is this impacting them? A lot of the time, because we've been so conditioned not to even believe that all of these killings have an effect on us emotionally, mentally, physically, and relationally, sometimes we kind of shun it off. We're like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just tired. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't focus. But really what this data are telling us is, like Dr. Black said, we know this already, but what it's telling us is this is actually happening to us. So there's the importance of naming it naming what the problem is, that it is affecting us. And so if we're able to name it, now we're not blaming ourselves, right? Which is another thing that racism does. We start blaming ourselves. Maybe I'm just not working hard enough. Maybe I am not um, strong enough, right? So it's like, no, you don't need to blame yourself. Your body is actually doing what it needs to do, which is responding to trauma. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Black, because uh, Dr. Awasan raised a good point. A lot of Black Folks live in neighborhoods where we experience uh, neighborhood violence. We witness neighborhood violence uh, and other forms of violence, even outside of our neighborhoods. So how in a study like this, did they isolate that the relationship of your lack of sleep is tied to you watching police killings versus you watching, you know, some neighborhood violence or something that's totally unrelated to police violence? Like, like how valid, I guess, is this? Because it seems like it would be hard to isolate all of the factors you would need to isolate to even reach this conclusion. So they looked at massive survey data and they took time points. Here was a, in this region where the survey data was coming from, there was an, a shooting of an unarmed Black individual. What happened to survey respondents of their sleep patterns? And so it was a correlation um, not causation. Causing would be this armed uh, shooting of an unarmed Black person caused the poor sleep. What they found is if you look at patterns across time, the patterns fit that when there was a shooting, reported data for poor sleep got worse. Okay. And so looking at that, again, can you conclude that there were other things perhaps that could be the cause of the poor sleep or, the, you know, that Poor sleep was also correlated to other types of violence or other types of stressors that people may experience. Yes, and so this is where one of the places where the 96% not Black researchers gets carried away. So are there other factors? Absolutely. We got straw stress, COVID stress. We got, we got, we know what we're going through, right? But where we get carried away in researchers who aren't implicated in the harm is they want to go and document each of those additional steps that you're talking about. So before they'll say, oh, my God, it's racism. Let's go end it. They'll be like, oh, well, what if it's job stress? Let's go do a study. Oh, what if it's family stress, incarcerated son? Let's go do a study. They're going to do a study about 1.1 bazillion things instead of going after the cause, which we know is get rid of racism. So, yes, it's everything and but the solution is still get rid of racism. So I can tell Dr. Black by your responses, you're not a big fan of this study and other studies like this. No, no mistaken uh, about how you no mistaking about how you feel about th this study in particular and then others. 
what do you think a better use of these researchers' time would be? Obviously, they're not in a position to dismantle police violence against Black folks, I don't imagine, because I imagine these are professors at universities like yourself. So what, what do you think is a better use of their time? So it's not that I'm disrespecting the study, right? Just like the smartphone intro you were making before, we had to get receipts because we're not in the room of decision makers. So the steps of gathering receipts is completely valid. What I'm saying is we've got enough receipts to go get to work now. That's what I'm saying. So instead of collecting more receipts of the harm, I want to see a study of I'm at Hospital X. We did this and our outcomes got better. Huh, Hospital B, can you do that too? I want a competition of who fixed it. Let's write papers of who got rid of the sleep problems from insomnia and police shootings. I want to know who fixed it and compete for the front page in that study. And so... Valid point, uh, Professor Awasan. Who would be those people? Because, you know, the police shooting is a very complicated, you know, criminal justice system that we have. And we've seen efforts to address uh, systemic bias and racism in policing from, you know, all kinds of things that a lot of, for the most part, haven't worked that effectively. But, you know, some police departments will tell you they've done things like implicit bias training, uh, de-escalation training, et cetera. But in your estimation, you know, who is in that position to address these issues? Well, all of us, all of us as human beings living on earth, whether you are black, brown, or white, it is all of our work to fix this problem. Right. Every I mean, I think most of the time when we talk about race, we want to think about it in terms of we're talking about black and brown people, but white people are implicated, too. So all of us need to learn how do we actually identify the impact that has been handed down to us that we didn't ask for. Right. Of this hierarchy around race, black is less than it's something to be feared. Therefore, we kill them and white is better. We need to start dismantling that thought, both white people and black people, even for black people in the ways in which we might have internalized it. Right. In terms of like, oh, maybe I need to just like accommodate white people, please white people. We need to stop doing that. And I think for me, the way I'm doing it in my work right now, like I said, I'm training the next generations of clinicians and researchers. So my focus is really focusing on um, anti-racist like lens and right anti-oppressive lens and really helping them to understand the impact of structural racism, the impact of whiteness on the ways in which they actually do their work, whether it's their clinical work, their research, even their teaching. No, and, and that's really important because obviously uh, teaching clinicians how to uh, address these issues and to be culturally uh, sensitive and, and you know knowledgeable about these issues is so important. Do you see, Dr. Black, anyone uh, in your academic circles doing the kind of work that you have indicated you know, you'd like to see done? Folks working on the the problem and coming up with solutions rather than just continuing to document the harm. Do I have colleagues? Absolutely. Are my colleagues the heads of departments with the decision-making pinstroke power? No. And that's what we run up and get to Dr. Awasan's point. We were gifted this mess, right? And so the power structures that are benefiting off of the harm of our people, the power structures that are normalizing it, the power structures that are trying to say, oh, Black folks aren't sleeping, 
mm, you're just not coping the right way, right? Those power structures are centuries in the making and very tricky to dismantle. So do we have solutions out there? Absolutely. But until every clinician, every physician, every nurse, every neighbor, every fry cook, until everybody demands medical accountability, societal accountability, in the same way they cry for police accountability, it's not going to get any better. Well, okay. That's kind of an all or nothing approach in terms of everyone doing it. But I, I guess I'm asking even incremental progress. Are you seeing people in academia, the circles that you are in or are familiar with, doing some of this work to address more, you know, not just documenting, as I said, the harm, but actually trying to get to solutions. I recognize that there's structural issues inside these, you know, academic institutions that I guess you're alluding to the fact that there are people who are in positions of power uh, that don't necessarily have the same, uh, you know, th th their uh, motives and the work that they're doing isn't necessarily aligned, I, I guess what you're saying, with those who are seeking to dismantle these structures. Who's doing it? I will tell you my med students, my residents, and some of my junior colleagues, they are more radical than myself. And I'm not just talking about the Black ones. I'm talking about folks with silver spoon privilege standing alongside the minoritized to use their privilege to amplify our voices. So we're out there. We're absolutely out there. But we need everyone joining in to uplift the change agents versus letting them get reprimanded through normative structures of being radical or not fit for patient care, which is what often happens. Okay, so you are seeing a, a younger generation that is trying to dismantle some of these structures, but you're saying they often run into uh, opposition uh, from the structures, yes. from the, the old guard, from people who don't want to see change. Uh, they are often silenced, and I guess their work is, is not allowed to move forward. Uh, when we come forward, I do want to talk about what we can do, because those of us that see these studies and get like alarmed by them, you know, what should we be doing? And, you know, we get into the whole issue of, you know, should we even be watching the videos? Obviously, we should be trying to work to dismantle some of these structures, as you both have said. Uh, but I want to give people some real practical things that they should be doing to protect their mental and their physical health. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and Professor Carmen Black, as well as Professor Christiana Awasan are joining me. And we're talking about this new report out that says that uh, basically if you're a black adult, that your sleep patterns are disturbed or disrupted uh, because basically because you have witnessed or you've watched police killing of unarmed Black folks. Uh, Dr. Black, I remember uh, seeing some other articles and uh, information out about, you know, these videos of, of people being harmed by the police, mostly Black people, and how these videos oftentimes circulate on the internet, and they become almost like a they call them like trauma porn, where people are just watching them over and over and over. People become addicted to them uh, and in, in some ways become desensitized to them. So now we have this study out that makes what you said is a pretty obvious finding. 
uh, about sleep and this relationship to watching these videos. So is the solution to not watch these videos, not watch the news, not tune in to these traumatic events? I think all things in balance. So I want to echo the words of Dr. Albasan where it's monitoring the extent. Me as an individual, I'm already stressed out doing what I do. I've not watched a single murder video out there. I try to guard my space. I have enough personal trauma to go viewing that of others. But at the same time, that's not an excuse to be uninformed. And so you don't have to watch the video to stay informed about the issues relevant to this community. And so all things with balance and if you do choose to watch it, this idea you're raising about it becomes obsessive to a point, we should never be immune, habituated to dead Black bodies. And that's what can happen to we as a people. And it can also have the opposite effect for the systems we're trying to dismantle by having images of dead Black folks everywhere. We're not the only ones who become used to it. The privileged folks become used to it as well. And so we really want to make sure all things with balance, if there's a purpose to viewing the video. Mm -hmm. Really good point. Uh, and what's your position on that, uh, Dr. Awasan? Uh, you, again, have a clinical practice. You see people come in, I'm sure, who are you know stressed out, who are anxious, who are depressed for a variety of reasons. And some, you know, when there was this kind of spate of, of Black killings, I, I, lots of us were you know, just angry. We were, you know, really experiencing something emotionally. So do you advise your patients to not watch them, watch them in moderation? Uh, what's your advice? Yeah, I agree with what Dr. Black said. I, I tell them to watch it in moderation. And at the same time, I try to understand why they're watching it too, because some people are actually watching it because that's their response to trauma, right? One of the things that we know about trauma is if you experience it or even see it, right? There's a way in which you continue to watch it in order to tell yourself, is this really real? Am I really experiencing this? So it can be another form of responding to trauma. So we have to also be mindful of that. Why are you watching it? Is it really helpful? Is it not helpful? How can we limit the amount of time you're watching it? And definitely, maybe you shouldn't watch it, but you also still need to be informed. As Dr. Black said, which I agree, we already know as Black people that these things are affecting us. We, we don't need to watch it. But sometimes it's because people are actually responding to trauma. That's why they're watching it. So we know, Dr. Black, you said this study isn't telling us, you know, that there's a causal link. It's more relationship, uh, a relational uh, you know, connection here between sleep or lack of sleep or disruptive sleep patterns and watching these killings. So if you don't watch them, does the does it mean your sleep is going to automatically improve? Is that what I don't think it's means? so much the watching aspect. We can also like a fish doesn't know it's in water, but we know we're in racism. Right. So just daily conversations, the dinner table conversations like you have at work, it's it's in the air we breathe when these happen. So myself, I've never watched a video, but by virtue of who we are and what I do, I've heard it and been in, like steeped in it again and again and again. So it's important to validate. It's not just the act of turning on your phone and watching the video. It's also the daily events that never let you forget that you're under attack. 
And so it's not don't watch the video and you'll sleep like a baby. That's not what society designed for us to go through. But that's also going back to that self-validation piece to recognize that the stress we're feeling is exactly what society designed us to feel. But so what can we do? So the question is, and you're right, the study isn't just about watching videos. In fact, it says exposed to news. So exposed to news of police killings is very broad. That could be you're exposed because you read the article yourself. You're exposed because, as you said, there's some conversation happening in the workplace or in your home about it, or you're out and there's a flash, you know, uh, on a, a, a sign or you're at a talk and someone is talking. So there's so many ways that we get exposed uh, to news. So, Dr. Awasan, how do we improve our health? Because at the end of the day, you know, I want people to leave here feeling empowered. Yeah. That there's some way that they can improve their health and well-being. Mm -hmm. But it is kind of difficult to say you won't be exposed, like to prevent yourself from any exposure. Yeah, definitely. And this is why I always say when people go safe space, we need to create safe space. I always say to people, there's no safe space, especially for Black people, right? Because we are exposed to this things all the time. So the good thing to do is, is to know that these things are happening. Let's name it. Let's self-validate, right? That this is happening. I'm not going crazy. There's nothing wrong with me. Like there is racism that is happening to me because of my skin color and to people who look like me. Just naming it alone, I've really seen it in therapy, reduces people's anxiety, reduces their depression because they're like, oh, wow, this is very important. So naming it is one thing. The other thing is really disconnecting from social media and any other news, maybe for like two hours, maybe for like three hours or two days, whatever it is that you need to like cleanse yourself or fast from social media, do that. And also not just doing that, but connect yourself with people who will truly fill your soul, right? People who will truly validate who you are, who will truly validate your Blackness, who will create that space for you that you actually feel secure in. And thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, Black, for reminding me that this study is not just about sleep. It's about the exposure causing also uh, anxiety and depression and PTSD and other, again, you know, uh, kind of mental, I guess these would be considered mental health uh, symptoms. So now we have exposure to the news of police killings being related to a whole myriad of, uh, you know, emotional issues, anxiety, depression, PTSD. So this is pretty serious. Uh, so uh, back to, you just said it's so ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere we live in it. So we can't really prevent ourselves from not being exposed to racism because it's so pervasive in our culture. So does this mean we're all just going to suffer from PTSD, anxiety, depression, and poor sleep? Not at all. One of the things I find helpful for myself and some of my patients come to me and say is helpful is active resistance. Active resistance could be going to your religious center and finding your humanity. It could be going to a political rally. It could be getting out and voting. Yo, voting. It's mobilization, right? We're, we, we've been at this 400 years. Racism and good ain't going nowhere, but neither are we, Dagnabbit. We're we here to stay. And so mobilizing is how we as a people keep getting up in the morning and keep on keeping on. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that's important. Obviously, you called it active resistance. 
have you seen that in your practice, uh, Dr. Asawan, where, where those clients, those patients who uh, are actively involved in their community, going to you know places of worship, voting, being civically engaged, does that reduce some of those uh, you know symptoms, depression, anxiety, uh, some of those mental health issues? Yes, it does. Um, one of the things that we know, um, and if people really want to learn more about racial trauma, they should read the book that Dr. Ken Hardy wrote around racial trauma. And one of the aspects of invisible uh, wounds of racial trauma is rage. We call it anger, but it's really rage, right? We are really rage that our dignity is being assaulted right? And valued all the time. So what I really help my clients to do is how do I help you rechannel that rage into something that is going to be helpful for you to participate in the system of liberating yourself, liberating ourselves as a people. So some people, yes, definitely they go um, protest, right? When the whole thing with the killing of George Floyd happened, our phone line was ringling nonstop. And really what we helped people to do is how do you use your voice, right? By protesting. How do you use your voice by doing um a YouTube or writing something. That's another way to really like re, um, re-channel that rage, right? Some people go and pray. Some people hang out with their friends, their family. So it's like really helping people to put words to that rage and to really help them re-channel that rage rather than turn it inward or turn it outward. So, What's the name of that book, uh, Dr. Uh, Awasan, that you just referenced? I want to make so, sure I get the name of it. Yes, so it's Racial Trauma, by Dr. Kenneth V. Addy. So. All right, no, thank you for that, that reference. Uh, when we come forward, wanna talk more about just how people are processing this. You mentioned Dr. Black, we've been here 400 years, racism has been a part of this country and by all accounts is going to continue to be at some level. Uh, really curious to see what some uh, scientists, researchers, those in academia are doing around these issues. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and we're talking about exposure to the news of police killings of unarmed Black people, its impact on adults. And we know, according to this new study in a medical journal, that that exposure causes uh, Black people to suffer from poor sleep. It also can cause depression, anxiety, PTSD. And we're talking about what you can do uh, to protect your mental and your physical health with Dr. Christiani, Christiana Awasan, as well as Dr. Carmen Black, are here uh, for this conversation. I mean, it's just Dr. Black. So a lot of folks go to therapy when they believe they're experiencing anxiety, depression, PTSD, those who have medical insurance or find some other ways to go to therapy. But I, I wonder in, in our society right now, how many of these therapists are able to address racial trauma uh, and to provide the kind of treatment that really you know can get at the root of, of the racial oppression and racial trauma that we experience as Black folks? The number is growing, but it's not the majority, and we're a long way from being the majority. 
What I'll say is a lot of folks want to say, I need a Black therapist, I need a Black psychiatrist, I need a Black doctor. There's some truth in that. But there's a lot of allies who look like anything on this great planet who have taken the work to be receptive to what we have to say. So don't wait for a Black therapist before you go reach out and try to find someone who's receptive to your experience. Black is great if you can find it, but they don't let us exist in large numbers. But we can work to find people who are receptive to our humanity, no matter what they look like. Well, even if you are Black and you've gone to a certain institution or you've gotten your training from a certain place, it doesn't automatically mean, Dr. Awasan, does it, that you know how to deal with someone who is suffering from you know, the impact of racial trauma, because I can't imagine every Black person has had, you know, the kind of training that you're providing. Uh, definitely. And that's the sad part of it. I think if not in the last 10 years, that's when we have actually started to talk about how do we even talk about race and the impact of racism on the clients that are coming to therapy. Um, if we look at the DSM-5, which is the Called Bible that we use as clinician, there's nothing in there that speaks to the trauma of racism. Even though people um, like Dr. Ken Hardy and also Dr. Um, William Carter, right, um, in Colombia, have been writing about these things and they don't want to hear it, right? And so, how do we then train future clinicians, current clinicians? We don't have that much training in them. And even when you are Black, there are ways in which you have to think about how you yourself have internalized racism and how if a client who is Black comes to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing anxiety or depression because of the ways I'm treated at work or because of I'm seeing this violence happen to Black people, if you're a Black person that have internalized whiteness or basically you're trying to protect yourself as well because we have to survive in this world, no, it's not what it is. We minimize that client's um, experience. And so that causes even more harm. Even so, yes, as a Black clinician or as a Black student um, clinician in training, it is also important to do that work of how do I also understand what racial trauma is? How does it show up in my own life? And how would it show up when I see clients who look like me? Because just having clients who look like you doesn't really solve the problem. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Dr. Carter. I'm very familiar with his work. Uh, and I'm also involved as a civil rights lawyer uh, with several cases right now, and I've been throughout my career where even my clients don't believe that they have experienced racial trauma. There's a, a, a psychiatrist at Pepperdine, Dr. Cheryl Grills. She uh, teaches a class, or I've been to a workshop, I don't know if it's a full class at the university, but I've been to a workshop where she talks about intergenerational racial trauma mm -hmm. and that people can experience racial, racial trauma uh, even though, you know, they, they can, it's something that can be passed down, but that, for a lot of people, Dr. Black is hard to accept, hard to internalize. I'm sorry, Dr. Grills is at Loyola, not Pepperdine, but I'm sure both of you are familiar with her work. She was on the California Reparations Task Force. But for a lot of people, Dr. Black, they don't, Black or white or any, uh, you know, folks don't believe that racial trauma is real. Uh, Dr. Awasan just said it's not in the Bible of, you know, uh, the uh, you know diagnoses for mental health issues. So 
how do we even get folks to treat something if we are in denial about its existence? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's my answer. Uh-huh. Precisely. That's a million dollar question. It's it's about so I was remediated in my residency for incompetency. So when I referenced before that even what is that to, break that down? What does that mean? They told me I was clinically incompetent. I was insubordinate if I disagreed. If I didn't roll over and say, yes, I agree, I suck, I was not good enough to be a doctor even as under the diversity banner, they bring us here. And I say that because the ones- So what happened to you? You're a doctor, right? I resigned from my first residency and went back to my home institution because I said I would rather graduate from my good old medical college of Georgia than kiss these fancy butts up here. But the reason I say that is because the ones who say, nope, no problems, are actually more likely to get promoted in these white dominant institutions. The ones who walk around and say, yep, you're doing great. High five. We don't have the power in our Okay, you're at, you're at Yale University, right? <laughs> Until July. <laughs> it doesn't get any whiter than Yale. So No, we got a whole book talking about Yale and slavery, and I'm leaving in July. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all didn't make this. I'm just using their glitter to say what I need to say. Okay, so you're saying that there is incentive. You're incentivized to deny yes. the existence of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's uh, troubling <laughs> to say the least. Uh, how how do we, Doctor Awasan? How do we get the DM? Is it DMS five or? to get, you know, to recognize racial trauma as something that's real. Is that yeah. happening? Is that never going to happen? Is that likely to happen? I think I am more hopeful now than I was 15 years ago when I was a master's student at Syracuse University asking these questions. Um, I'm more hopeful now because, yes, research like this, as Black people, we already know. But as we know, academia, white institution needs data. Right. They need the written form of word is what they need. So data is like this research like this helps us to compile information that this is actually truly happening to black and brown people and that it is not only affecting us socially in terms of like our economy. It is affecting us mentally, emotionally and relationally. We, we don't even talk about the relational part of it. That's the impact of racism. So the more research we have right, on the impact of structural racism, um, everyday, sadly, racism that we experience, the more closer we are to getting racial trauma into the DSM. Wow. So, you know, I, I guess there's so much right now uh, pushback on even having conversations about racism. And for some people, if you even talk about it, that means you're racist, that means you're divisive, that means you you know, are, are trying to uh, divide the country. And it seems like that's such an uphill battle uh, to get clinicians and academia to acknowledge the existence of, of racial trauma and the impact that it can have on individuals and then more broadly communities. Well, we're out of time. Obviously, such an important conversation. Thank you both for the work that you're doing in this area. Obviously, a lot more work needs to be done. And as you said, Professor Awasan, these studies, although may be so obvious, uh, hopefully are helping to move us in a direction where racial trauma is recognized and something that insurance companies will cover and that clinicians will learn to recognize and learn to treat. 
uh, because that's uh, really what it's all about, protecting people's mental and physical health. Again, thanks to both of you for lifting up this work. All right, next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Don't touch that dial.